and I love you. And I appreciate you. And I appreciate this church and I appreciate what God's doing in this city. Hallelujah. Now, with that said, man, there's a lot of stuff I want to preach tonight. It used to bother me when I felt like this just happened, and you're going to be like, Brother Marks, this just happened before God, this just happened for me. It used to bother me when I felt like there was 400, and I was taking an hour and a half of 400 people's time to minister to a handful. That used to bother me. I knew that the spirit of what God was saying to the minority would, would affect the majority. When there's 300 people there, you want to feed 300 people. You don't want to feel like you're preaching to one person. Unless you've ever been that one person. And just a few, just a few months ago, it, it hit me. Jesus gave us a saying, I believe, that likened unto his nature, that he left the 99 to go after one. So apparently there is a safety in the majority. Apparently there is a safety in the majority long enough for us to be able to leave the majority and go after the one that has strayed. So I'm going to take confidence and I'm going to have peace in that tonight. Okay? So I'm going I'm going to address some things I have felt. I don't know your stories, okay? I just know what I've felt in prayer. I believe I'm going to address some some situations specifically. But the Holy Ghost also assured me standing on this platform that as I address some situations specifically that most all of us will be tied in to what I'm saying because of what we have, a lot of us, of what we've been through together as a collective body. Okay? I'm going to make this statement. Ready? This is, this is where we're going to go from here. This is what the Holy Ghost spoke to me. Listen. Look at me. Jesus said to me, the way he talks to me, he said to me, to say to you, I would rather repair you than replace you. I would rather restore you than replace you. I would rather fix you than find somebody else. God, the God of glory is still in the restoration business. 
You hear what I'm telling this church, and I know you're standing, but let me speak prophetically to you. The Word of God talked about shepherds that God would raise up. That, if there, if, if there is a man that personifies the fulfillment of that prophecy, it is Floyd Odom in flesh. It is this church, Pentecostal Tabernacle. He said, I will raise me up shepherds. Scattered sheep by the droves, wounded. Another place, another place in, 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 in the Old Testament talked, talked about shepherds that were willing to pick up a leg over here and an ear over there. And, and it's, it's sheep that had been scattered for a plethora of reasons. In fact, I'm preaching to people here tonight. The very reason you're here, you're broken and you're confused and you are without direction. And God has led you here. Because God has raised up a man. God has raised up a place. Hallelujah. I believe that there are going to be scattered sheep that are drawn to this place from literally all over the country. Come on. If God's healed you, if God's put you back together, if you're here tonight because of that restoration, come on, testify right now. Lift your hands and thank God for his power to heal. There's a reason God didn't let this church die. There's a reason that God put it on a man's heart to come here and collect the remnants. Come on. The devil gave this city his best shot. The enemy gave him his best shot. The devil had a plan, but God had a bigger plan. God's raising up a place for the broken. God is raising up a people. Do you hear me? God didn't just heal you to heal you. God healed you to heal somebody else. God didn't just heal you to put you back together I don't care how big a, I don't care how big a mess it is you hear what I'm telling you as you're turning to Isaiah 61 God would rather repair you Then replace you. My question to you is if God had a plan in the Old Testament that there were cities of refuge. I understand from the old law to the new dispensation that there was a lot of things that changed. I believe that was part of God's plan and order. I believe if there were cities of refuge in the Old Testament, I believe that God has cities of refuge and places of refuge in the New Testament church. Isaiah 61 and verse number 1 reads that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, 
to proclaim the acceptable year. Let me stop right here and just prophesy. I hope that's, I hope that's okay. I, I am preaching to you, and I am preaching to broken people under the sound of my voice, but at the same time, I am preaching in the Spirit beyond the four walls of this building. You can, you can think, man, that guy has fallen off his rocker and hit his head. But I'm telling you, as when I started talking just a few moments ago, it, every time I close my eyes, it's like I see men and women from every direction just rising and, and like there's a gravitational pull. And I just see people walking towards the nucleus, this place, towards right here. Tonight is not just about us, and it is going to be about us, and it is going to be about you because God's going to speak specifically to you. But I don't want you to be surprised. You hear me? In the next, in the next several months, don't be surprised. When there is a drip, then, then the drip turns to a trickle, and the trickle turns to a drip, and the drip turns to a river. And before you know it, there are droves of backsliders that are coming through these back doors. I want you to remember this night. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Notice. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion. To give unto them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they might be called trees of righteousness. The planning of the Lord that he might be glorified. We make the mistake all too often of stopping there, though. God does not repair and restore only to repair and restore. God repairs and restores to stay. God repairs and restores for the continuity of Repair and restore. What I mean by that is, read the next verse. And they. Who is they? The ones that he's just given beauty for ashes. The ones that he's just given oil of joy for mourning. Who is they? Those that he's just taken the spirit of heaviness and given them the garment of praise. And they shall build the old waste. And they shall raise up the, for the former desolations. And they shall repair the waste cities. They. I want to talk tonight for just a few moments on the thought from broken to beautiful. From broken to beautiful. Lift your hands and ask the Lord to have his way here the next few moments. Hallelujah.
You can be seated. You heard me this morning reference my morning madness. I caught a glimpse of some of you that that captivated your curiosity. My morning madness is just the way I go about my devotion, my personal consecration. To some, it would seem as madness, but as the old saying goes, there's a method to my madness. Part, one part of my daily madness is I every day try to do a, a word, in-depth study of a particular word, sometimes a Hebrew word, sometimes a Greek word, and Bishop knows how this is. It's, it's, it's so hard to stay focused because you're trying to study one thing and, and you've got 15,000 tributaries that are running in 15,000 other different directions. You have to be very disciplined to stay with that word and save the other little starter things. You make notes and save those for the next day or somewhere down. It's just it's madness. That's why I call it madness. I love it. I wouldn't trade anything for, for what I do. This text, though, fell to me a while back, Isaiah 61, and it kind of, the focus landed in verse number three. This, this is a very familiar portion, a very familiar portion of Scripture to all of us. We, we, we know this portion of Scripture because of not just its record in Isaiah 61, but because it was repeated. These were the words that we have record of, of Jesus as he preached his first message, his first church service in which he took a text. This was the first text that Jesus ever took. So that's our connection to it. But my, my eyes continued to follow, fall to verse number 3. And what went from a word study turned into basically the uh, collectively the, the, the totality of verse number 3. I never heard this preached. I'm sure it has been preached, but I never recognized it. It never stood out to me. But when I began to look at the history of verse number 3, I, I realized, and then with the help of some, some commentators, realized that verse number 3 contains, it contains all of the symptoms or the attributes of a funeral. Everything that he speaks of, if I could say it like this, all of the baggage in verse number 3 that he gives and expresses his desire to exchange for, all of these symptoms are symptoms of a death. Something has died. There is ashes. There is mourning. There is the spirit of heaviness. Israel is cowered down under the fear of the shadow of death. Their self-esteem has completely bottomed out. Not only did they suffer the indignity of being considered a worm by other nations, but they had come, they had come to believe that themselves. Before Israel could ever do one thing profitable, 
with the help of God, they had to have freedom from their own fears and restoration to the joy of their living. They were living under the shadow of death. Every symptom, are you hearing me? Ashes, mourning, and the spirit of heaviness. All of us that are sitting here, most of us rather that are sitting here, uh, have, have become all too well acquainted with these symptoms. I am preaching to people right now that have dealt with all of these symptoms. All of these symptoms are indicative. The enemy has used these symptoms as indicators that it's over and it's finished. The enemy has taken the ashes. The enemy has taken the mourning. The enemy has taken the heaviness. Come on now. If you've been delivered, you ought to be helping me right now. And he is, he is trying he is trying to throw these things in your face as proof that there is a death taking place. But I have come to preach to you on this hot Sunday night in Decatur, Alabama. I've come to preach to you. The Holy Ghost has sent me up here to break up a funeral. Come on. I've come to break up a funeral. I don't know if you heard me, so let me repeat myself. I am very comfortable with my assignment here tonight. There is a funeral possession. There is, there is a funeral feeling. Come on. That's synonymous with somebody's situation, somebody's life. Somebody's dealing with something right now. Every symptom is there that this is death. This is finality. But God sent you a man to tell you there's no funeral going to take place here. God God is about to resurrect what looks dead. Hallelujah. Let me preach to you right now. I don't care how much proof they think they have. I don't care how long the list is. I don't care how many things are stacked up against you. God wants you to understand tonight. Come on. This is not the end. This is not the end. This is not finality. God has a restoration plan. Clap your hands and give God praise if you believe that. Come on, you ought to mix it with your voice. Come on, you ought to give him a Psalms 47. Oh, clap your hands, all your people, and shout unto God. Hallelujah. Failure. Failure is a serious matter. But hear this preacher as I try to clearly articulate what I feel in the spirit. Failure is a serious matter, but it's not final. Failure is tragic. But let me tell you something. Surprise, we've all done it. Come on. And if you go back and you look at the prerequisites, if you look at what God's looking for in order to deem a man a righteous,
righteous man, it has nothing to do with the absence of failure. He said a righteous man falleth seven times. Come on, you want to know what a righteous man looks like? A righteous man has muddy knees, but a righteous man knows how to keep getting back up on his feet. Yes, there's failures, but failures are not final. A righteous man falls seven times. A righteous man falls seven times. I said a righteous man falls seven times. I'm going to back up and try it again. A righteous man falls. For God to deem you righteousness is not how many times you've hit the deck. For God to deem a man righteous is how many times you decided to get back up. Hallelujah. It's the spirit of the bobblehead. I wish I had one here. I wish I had one of them big blown up punching bags that when you hit it, it goes down but it comes up. It's the spirit of the bobblehead that says I might fall and you might knock me down but rejoice not against me, oh my enemies. For when I fall, I'm not promoting failure. I'm not glamorizing failure. But failure is part of life. We've all fallen short. Don't you pull that righteous elder brother Hallelujah. Oh, like sheep we have all gone astray. Some of you didn't go to foreign countries, but God spared you the shame of showing everybody the time in your life that you played with the crawdads in the ditches. Some of you made it as far as the road and came to your senses. But like sheep we have all Failure is not final. There's a big difference between F-E-L-L and F-A-I-L. I said there is a big There is a big difference between F-E-L-L and F-A-I-L. To me, failure is complete capitulation. Failure is somebody that falls and decides I'm finished trying and I'm never going to get back up again. Come on, I'm preaching to somebody that F-E-L-L. You have not F-A-I-L-E-D. You F-E-L-L. And I'm telling you, there's a God here that wants to take the ashes. He wants to take the broken pieces. He wants to take the spirit of heaven. 
Hallelujah. Yes, he denied thrice. Yes, he cut a man's ear off. Yes, he cursed. He would never hear the crow of a cock again without, out, without it sending shudders through his body. There would never be a winter again in which he would try to stand close and warm his body that he would not remember when he denied. But can I remind you, he was the first preacher on the day of Pentecost in spite of his failures, in spite of his shortcomings, come on, in spite of his mistakes, in spite of the debacle, in spite of the mess he made. Come on, I'm preaching to somebody. There was a Simon Peter that got a second chance and he didn't stay in the boat. The Bible said he climbed out of the... Hallelujah. If God was willing to give me a second chance, I wouldn't stand around and twiddle my thumbs and think about it. I'd climb out of the boat and I'd run to him. I would jump at the opportunity to get a second chance. Jesus reaches down into the dust of the terra firma, picks up an ear, all of its nerve endings revealed. He picks it up. That which has been displaced. And he sets it back onto the face of the Roman soldier. Listen, and an observer could step away and say, he's restored the Roman soldier. But someone who's been forgiven steps away and says, he's restored a fallen disciple. Why? Why? The removal of that ear was all of the evidence that they needed to kill Simon Peter. Jesus put the ear back on that Roman soldier, not just for that Roman soldier. He put the ear back on that Roman soldier to cover for his Pentecostal preacher. Listen to me. We have a jury. It's a courtroom sitting here. In the spirit, there's a courtroom. And the enemy is presenting all his evidence as to why you're finished. He has, he has shown the ashes. He has shown the heaviness. He's given all the evidence as to why there ought to be a funeral. But I am here tonight. As the defense, I am here to lay some things on the table for your consideration. God was covering for you. God was covering for you when you were out of your head and you allowed your emotions to take over you. God was covering for you when you were caught up. 
Yes, there's ashes. Yes, there's broken pieces. But before we go forward with a funeral and bury somebody with great anointing and great potential, we need to look back over our lives. It's the mercies of God. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He was born in the year 1942, a cold January day. His mother named him Stephen. According to Forbes magazine, February 2016, Stephen's net worth was $2.3 billion. He attended the University of Pennsylvania. He now is the CEO of Wynn Resorts Limited. He is an American businessman, but he's known most for being an art collector. Steve Wynn in my mind, he's infamous. Some would say famous. To me, he's infamous. Well known for his involvement in the American luxury casino and hotel industry. Early in his career, he oversaw the construction and operation of several historically notable hotels in Las Vegas, the Atlantic City hotels, including the Golden Nugget, the Golden Nugget Nugget. Atlantic City, the Mirage, Treasure Island, the Bellagio, Beau Rivage in Mississippi. He played a pivotal role in the resurgence and the expansion of the Las Vegas Strip in the 1990s. Steve Wynn, though, is known not for his money, but known for his love for art. For many years, Mr. Wynn owned, was the owner of a painting that he purchased in the 1980s for $60 million. One painting. His little Picasso that he lives in next to the Wynn Hotel and Casino there in Las Vegas is filled with expensive art, but his centerpiece for many years was his favorite painting of all time, the Picasso painting, Le Rev, The Dream. He paid $60 million for it in the 80s. It was his pride and joy. While he loved all of Picasso works, the dream, the Lorev, was his favorite. As collectors do, we get bored. We become interested in something else. With some other pieces that became available, Mr. Wynn decides that he is going to turn loose of the Picasso painting the Lorev, and with the proceeds of this sale, he will purchase two new paintings. And so he puts the word out. There are several who are interested in the painting. Eventually, there is a sale arranged. It's all digital. Attorneys involved. Photos are taken. And in a short, very short period of time, Mr. Wynn sells 
the Larev, the dream, to his friend, Mr. Steve Cohen, for the small price of $139 million. But you got to understand, Mr. Wynn had such a great affinity for the Picasso painting that he was not ready to turn loose of it without one last celebration. And so he sends out invitations to a few close friends. There is a party that is planned. People from the entertainment world, the business world, movie stars, high fluting, high fluting people, fluting people there in Las Vegas come to this tiny casita one more time to share in celebration with Mr. Wynn the Picasso painting, the Larev. All of the guests begin to show up. As they show up, they walk into the house and the Picasso painting has been taken from its place and it has been placed on an easel in the middle of the room. Everyone is stalking around it from every angle, taking it in, admiring. I mean, this is something that has just sold for $139 million. Steve Wynn, my understanding, is very gregarious. He's flamboyant. They say he's one that talks with his hands. He's very expressive. Unfortunately, later in life, he is not as steady on his feet as he once was. His vision is not as good as it once had been. He is standing in front of the dream and he is flinging his arms talking about the Picasso painting and Mr. Wynn stumbles and falls and runs his hand and elbow through the center of the dream. I'm sure the room was silent much like this room is silent right now. The air, the air sucked from their lungs. Nora Ephron was there. She told a little bit of the story. She says, she says he trips and falls and says he lays there for a second. And he looks up and he says, listen, good news is we're all still alive. <laughs> and the next thing he says, the one thing I would appreciate it more than anything, he says, and at least I did this and not you. But what's $139 million to somebody that's worth Several billion. See, what people didn't understand is he had a love for this. He had an emotional attachment. And so his heart was broken, but his heart was not broken because it broke his pocketbook. His heart was broken because his love was broken. He's got a phone call to make. <laughs> Isn't text messaging so nice? All of us are guilty. You don't act like you're not guilty. There have been things that you didn't want to say that you should have said that you text. Don't get quiet on me right now. 
I'll jump out there in the midst of you. I'll start pointing fingers and naming names. The the squirrel will go to church in Alabama, not Mississippi. We've all done it. So he's, he's, he's come to figure out a way to break the news to Cohen. I know you just paid $139 million for this, but so he calls him. And he starts trying to stammer and stutter his way through the fall. He said, listen, Cohen. He said, there's two things. Man, this gets me. I'm closer to closing than you realize. He said, there's two things. He said, there was an insurance policy. He said, you can redeem the insurance policy. Keep the painting. Redeem the insurance policy. And all is well. He said, or I'll buy it back. I read an interview with Steve Cohen that said he didn't need a day to think about it. In fact, he didn't need he didn't need hours to think about it. He said immediately his response was, I'll sell it back to you. And in the interview, they asked Cohen why he didn't redeem the insurance policy. He said, because I would have never done anything with it. I didn't have, ah, uh, yeah, I had the money invested, but I didn't have the heart and the love invested that Wynn had invested in it. I would have taken the money and the painting would have gone in a closet somewhere and just been a story. He said, but I knew if the painting, listen, if the painting was to land back into the hands of the one that truly loved it, that it had a chance of being repaired. Somebody get your paintbrushes ready because when I get through tonight, you're going to have to repaint these walls. I'm fixing to paint. I'm going to preach the paint slap off these walls here tonight. He said, I'm not the heart lover you are. You've got more than money invested in it. You've got your heart invested in it. You take it. I had no clue that there was any such person. But the feverish search begins. Wind scours the world and eventually finds the best art surgeon in the world. With a heavy heart and heavy hands, he walks into this art surgeon with a broken dream. He sets it on the easel and he says, is there anything you can do? Listen now, hear me. The art surgeon looks closely at the damage that's been done And he says, yes, I can fix this. He said, in fact, he said, I can fix it. He said, I can repair it. And he said, no one will ever be able to tell from the front. He said, the dream's story will only be able to be told from the back of the canvas. But. Mr. Wynn, it's going to take time. It's going to take some laborious days, tedious work. You're going to have to be patient. 
It's going to take me some time. It's going to take some time. This is not something that can be fixed overnight. But it can be restored. If you'll let it sit still long enough, nothing has ever been restored that's on the run. It's an explanation to me why, Sister Sister Odom, Mother Odom, it's an explanation to me that if he is a restoring God, why there's not being more restored. There's not more being restored because there's not those that are willing to sit long enough. The brokenness, the brokenness cannot be fixed overnight. Come on, the healer can heal the broken places, but he's got to find somebody that will be still long enough and submit to the restoration process long enough in order for him to put it all back together again. Four years later, Steve Wynn boards his private jet and he flies back to his love. They bring him into the room and the work from the front is flawless. You can't tell that it was ever you can't tell that it was ever ripped, broken. Walk him to the back and they show him the stitches and the sutures. The back tells the story. This is the humbling part of an artist who is willing to spend all of those back breaking hours bent over a broken dream, willing to take all of the loose ends and pull it back together. The rest of the story is this. That painting sold again after it was restored. Not for $139 million. That painting was sold after its restoration for $155 million. It was worth more after the restoration than it was in its original state And if that doesn't ice the cake, guess what? Guess who bought it? The original purchaser. Cohen was willing to pay some 25 more million dollars for something that had been restored. See, broken people if they are placed into the hands. Alcohol has nothing invested in you. Drugs. And while I believe in counseling, and and I'm sure there's some profit to, to, to psychologists and counselors, and we thank God for people that are willing to give their lives to you. But you can't walk into, you know, to, to a certain extent, yes, but those people have made no investment in you. They've made no investment in your marriage. they made no investment in your ministry. They're only practicing what they have been taught. They're only practicing what they have learned from books, ladies and gentlemen. But if a broken life, a broken marriage, broken 
hope, broken dreams, broke, come on, broken peace, if it is placed, come on, into the hands of one that has made an investment, let's put our broken lives back into the hands of somebody that really loves and Now I understand why the man said, I would rather be in the hands of an angry God than not in his hands at all. Because even in his fury, even in his anger, and even in my brokenness from my selfish decisions, self-centered decisions, come on, even in my mess, I'm better off in his hands because he loves me. He's got blood coursing through my veins. He Sit there on the edge, would you? On the edge of that step. The humbling thing is. Here's the key word to restoration, I think. Rest. You got to be still. Here's the part that's humbling. When I've fallen, when others have fallen, the dream is not only ripped and destroyed when I fall through it. Some of you, your canvases of promise, futuristic ambitions, dreams, someone, someone, someone else tripped and fell. It's not just us that fall through and break those dreams, people that we love. It was a nurse. It was a support system. It was the person that fed him. It was the person that got him dressed, that picked him up and slipped and dropped him and caused him to be feeble in his legs. There's a myriad of things that caused the dream to be broken. But the humbling thing is if I will submit myself to the hand. Of the timeless artist. <laughs> and I am willing to allow him to place my life on eternity's easel. <laughs> God. If I will be still, if I will submit, if I will submit to him, if I will submit to his hands and understand, come on, that in his hands, in all of my brokenness, in his hands is where I'm safest. Here's what's humbling. But if I'll be still, that God is willing to spend the back-breaking hours <laughs> that heaven would hunker over me that heaven would humble itself and hunker over the likes of humanity. 
that the timeless artist, the one that spun the universes, the orbit into the existence, me, my rudiments are dirt. My pathology is dust. That if I'm willing to submit my broken life and my broken dreams to Him, if I'm willing to be still, that He's willing in the Spirit <laughs> to the spiritual sutures the spiritual stitchings and he's willing to take all the loose dangling ends pull it all back together he's able to take something broken and make it beautiful why would you pay 20-something more million for it in a repaired state? It's easy. It's a story. It's a testament. It's a piece of history that came to a crossroads, came so close to being forgotten. And now, because it has been restored, it lives on. People, churches, ministries, revivals that were broken. You hear what I'm telling you right now? We're going to be surprised who the Lord raises up in these last days. You tell me who gave David direction when he lost the path, when he lost the trail of the Philistines. You tell me who gave the king direction. It was an old Ham Hamlekite servant that had been used up. No good to the Philistines anymore. And they just tossed him to the side. We're going to be shocked, the Amalekite servants that God raises up in the last days to give direction to the apostolic church. You can have an elder brother mentality if you want. I never, I never left, I never left the church. No, but you stayed at the church and never did anything either. Well, I never smoked, I never drank, I never ran around on my wife. You never want a soul. You never knocked on a door. You never taught a home Bible study. You can be a prodigal and never leave the Father's house. You tell me in the end of that story who was worse off. The prodigal's relationship was restored with his father. The way that story concludes and ends, it seems that there's a greater separation, a greater estrangement, greater strain. 
It's only over if you buy into it. Did you hear what I just said? If it's only over if you buy into it. In his hands. You know him. You know him. Very successful. Given many, many, many millions, thousands, million. The work of God. Many years God used him as a facilitator. Had a big heart. Loves the underdog. He had some children, and as sometimes life goes, some of his children had a great love for God, and some of his children didn't. One of his sons went on to be a very successful pastor. Pastored a very strong mother church of probably between five and 600 people, was responsible before it was all said and done for 13 or 14 different daughter works literally around the world. The daughter, though, was the polar opposite. My understanding, she had been married so many times in her home state that they wouldn't let her get married again. Her daddy was constantly just, every time, he'd bail her out, give her money. No one, she probably wasn't buying groceries, probably giving her money to buy another line of drugs. Just her brother, the pastor, the successful pastor, had had enough. They were in a company truck one day, and he decided he was going to jump his death. Forgiven so much to his worthless sister. Why? You're creating a monster. You just give, 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 give. Why? The son told me, he said, I got through with my railings, and he said, I looked over, and he said, there were big tears rolling down my dad's face, and said, he turned, and he looked at me, and he said, son, he said, I got too much invested to quit now, and it made sense. It made, it resonated with me because I've asked God, why do you just keep coming back? Why do you just keep loving? Why do you just keep trying? Why do you just keep tugging? My God, you use dreams. You use car accidents. You use sicknesses. You orchestrate. Come on, you've got all this stuff at your access and you just keep dealing with us. Why, God? And I hear God say, because I got too much invested. I got too much invested in you. I've got too much invested in you. And so I close, I conclude with my beginning statements. He said, I would rather repair you.
I don't know what's happened. I don't know how much damage has been done. In fact, it may be a few weeks before we really know the extent of the damage. I don't know what kind of mess has been made. I don't know how much truth there is to it. I don't. I just come to tell you that Jesus is in the business of taking broken things. Mr. Cowan, why would you buy it back? Why is it worth more? It's not just Picasso's work now. It's not just Wynn's willingness. But it's the investment of restoration. There's something to say. My hat's off to the one that's never hit the deck really hard and made a bad mess. I will remind you again, there's no one here that's sterling. All of us have clay. And the last time I checked, there's only one unpardonable sin. Only one. And I think it's a whole lot harder to blaspheme and what we even realize. It's just sin. It's, he made it that way. You go back and you read the description that God gave to Moses about himself. Usually when you're introducing yourself, though, you want, you want, you want to tell people the good things first the things you want to be known for first. I wish I had the list in front of me. Oh, he got down to being jealous. He got on down the list. He got to being down to being jealous and being. But as he's, as he's introducing himself to his people through Moses, he said, Moses, you tell them first. I'm merciful. God has a preference. And it's not judgment. God has a preference. And it's not cutting people off. Oh, but God, Brother Marks, there comes a point that God will wash his hands and walk away. I'm telling you right now, it's after a lot. God will put up with a whole lot. David gave us, or who, I can't remember if it was a psalmist or one of the other writers that added to the, the psalms collection, but whoever it was gave us a wise piece of advice. I believe it was the psalmist David that said, in my haste, in my haste, I thought he had cut me off. Moses, tell him first. Get down to that judging part. Get down to that jealous. But tell them first. Merciful. 
You know where mercy came from? Mercy came when God's love and God's judgments in the garden collided. He said, you'll surely die. But God's, mer God's love for mankind, he had to stand true to his word, but he had to stand true to his love. And when those two things collided, Adam and Eve weren't the only things that left the garden. Mercy walked out of that garden. <laughs> and where would we be tonight? Oh, God. <laughs> the extent that God will go to. Fact, the deity is not worried about dirty in itself. It's a big thing. I'm preaching to somebody, you know my preaching's truth because God's been leaving little sticky notes around everywhere for you. This is just a confirmation of all of heaven's little sneaky notes. He's been leaving you. Little things. Little nudges. Everybody that's breathing and willing, would you take somebody by the hand and just move forward right now?